Evening church, how are we? Yeah, still just as energetic as uh, when Moff was up. Hey, uh, if you've got a Bible or a phone, please open that up to the book of Colossians. I'm just going to read, um, read what we're looking at tonight and then, uh, then we'll kick into it. Colossians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. To God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all of God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God, to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you might have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us, From the dominion of darkness, and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word that even though it was written so many years ago to to a church in a place um, that no longer exists, that yet it is a word that is living and active and that still speaks to us. We thank you for the message of Christ that, that is in it. And we've just sung that it's in Christ alone that our hope is found. And so, God, I pray as we work through this passage tonight that you would encourage us, that you'd fill our minds and our, and our hearts with, with Christ and what he has done, and that we'd hear your word as you speaking to us and we'd respond to it as such too. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I wonder if you've ever had the experience of... Um, Feeling like a kind of substandard or an inferior Christian. Um, or, or maybe it's more specific to say where someone has kind of made you feel uh, kind of substandard. Because there's always those, those beautiful and godly people who just unintentionally, but just by the character of their lives, they, they just put us to shame in our, in our walk with God. So there's always those kind of people. And I, and I don't mean in that sense, but I mean in the sense that someone almost deliberately is trying to make you feel inadequate in your, in your faith. It might be that friend who tells you that unless you speak in tongues, you're, you're missing out. It might be that older Christian who says, you know, unless you're at church tr- tr- uh, twice a week you know, and use the King James Version, then you might not even really be saved. It might be the guy who talks about experiencing miracles all the time with the, the not-so-subtle judgment on you who never sees or experiences that stuff. It might be the person who has such an in-depth knowledge of absolutely obscure facts about, from the Bible 
that can tell you the tree that Jonah lay under when he was in Nineveh, that can tell you the most, you know, what kind of ant bit Elijah or, you know, whatever, whatever it is. That's not in the Bible, but, you know, but, but that kind of thing, that, that depth of obscure knowledge that makes you um, just wonder, you know, there's this judgment on you about why don't you know God's word that well? I mean, it's God's word, and you know, why, why do you not know it? Whatever it is, it seems like some of these people, that, that they know something that we don't. They've got some inside knowledge. They're running on a different track and that somehow there's this sense in which they at least think that they are super Christians. Where everyone else has the basic package, they've got the super deluxe upgrade. And this was something that the Apostle Paul was always contending against. Yeah, in his letters to the Corinthians, he has to argue that he is a far more valid apostle than the so-called super apostles that the, the churches there were listening to. In Philippians, he says he has far more reason to trust in the flesh than those who are pushing circumcision as the fast track to God. Similarly, in Galatians, he, he fights passionately against those who would add obedience to, to the law as a requirement of salvation. And in each of these cases, Paul gets antagonistic. He's, he's up for the fight to knock down these super-Christians and their arguments. But in the letter that we're studying over the coming weeks, in the letter to the church in Colossian, uh, Colossae, he's actually much more friendly and warm. He's still addressing the kind of seduction of some of these other teachings uh, that would seem to differentiate ordinary Christians from those who are on you know, the advanced honours track kind of a thing. But for uh, his approach in this letter is less of a fight and it's more of a warning to them. You know, uh, pay attention to this so that you don't get misdirected and led astray. The problem seems to be less that people were coming into the church to actively mislead it, but that those who were already in the church who were being influenced by the society and the culture around them were bringing in teaching that was shaped more by the spirit of the age than by the spirit of God. It's the first, there's the first inklings of the heresy of Gnosticism that would really come into its own in a few centuries' time. But Paul, even in this early stage of it, recognising it for the problem that it was, was trying to nip it in the bud for these early Christians. See, in, in Gnosticism and the early form of it that Paul's addressing, certain people claimed this private enlightenment, if you like, of a deeper or even secret truths that were not known to the ordinary believer, but that uh, would be shared with them, could be discovered by them if they submitted to this kind of special secret initiation. In effect, they, they were saying to the Colossians, I mean, you've got the gospel message that you heard from Epaphras. You've got you know, the message of in Christ alone that you've just been singing. And that's, that's okay as far as it goes. But if you want a deeper knowledge, if you want a fuller experience, if you want a greater power, then there's more for you if you follow my teaching. So were these people Christians? I think judging by Paul's response, they probably were. So, Because he's not blasting them like he does in Philippians, calling them dogs or, or little better than pagans. So I think they probably were Christians, but they were misguided and they were uninformed. And if they were followed, they would draw the church not towards a greater spirituality, which is what they were you know, kind of touting, but that they'd actually draw the church away from Christ. And so in response and throughout the letter and in this first section of it, Paul presents the sufficiency of Christ and of the, 
the basic gospel. There is no further hidden knowledge to be gained because the the mystery has been fully revealed already in Christ. And he makes this clear first as he gives thanks for them and then as he prays for them. And he's, he's addressing this now with them so that they're not led astray. So, so he starts by giving thanks to God for them. He says, we always thank God, the, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Because we've heard of your faith in Jesus and of the love you have for all of God's people. The faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and about which you've already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. And in the same way as it has in you, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the world just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace to you. You learned this message from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also has told us of your love in the Spirit. See, as as he usually does, Paul starts his letter to the church in Colossae with, with thanksgiving. He says, that he and Timothy, who are writing the letter, he says they always thank God for them. And the reason that he gives thanks is because he has heard of their faith in Jesus and of the love that they have for his people. Now think about this. How, how is it that Paul and Timothy have heard about their faith? We see it in verse 8, that Epaphras has told them about it. But think about how that conversation could have gone. Epaphras arrives where they are, and, and Paul's in prison where he seems to spend most of his time, and, and they start to catch up. There's this mutual asking after each other to check in how they are. You know, Paul, how are you going? What's prison like? Are they treating you okay? Is, is there anything that you want or need? Is there a way that I can help you here? And so they're, they're catching up on all of this. And then Paul asks about the church. How's the church going in Colossae? And Epaphras, so how does Epaphras answer? Now, any usual gathering of pastors, the the response to a question like that will be to say, you know, yeah, well, we've got this many people attending our our services, that these are the programs that we're running, these are the finances finances that we've got coming in or or not, uh, though we don't tend to talk about that. You know, we talk about the, the number of staff that we've got, the style of the worship service and all that sort of stuff. But clearly, though, that's not how Epaphras answered when he was asked, how's the church going? Because Paul didn't start this letter by saying, we give thanks to God because we hear things are running really well there. We hear that your attendance is on on the rise, finances are good, you're putting on more stuff, and your programs are are, running all the time. And that's not what Paul says. He says, we've heard, not about all that stuff, but we've heard about your faith. And about your love. When Epaphras thought to answer the question about how the church was going, what he expressed was that they were trusting in Jesus. They had turned from other gods and were now trusting in Christ. They experienced suffering, but they were looking to God in the midst of it. When they were recipients of a blessing in whatever form it took, they they turned and they thanked God, their Father in heaven. They received When they received guidance for a decision that they were making, they saw the Spirit's hand at work in it. They had faith in Jesus. And more than that, too, they they loved each other and they loved Christians everywhere else as well. They cared for and helped each other. 
They gave to support one another. They prayed for other members of the church. They encouraged one another. They delighted in spending time together. They befriended other Christians, even if they were different to them. They had a love for all of God's people. This is a glowing report that Epaphras has given to Paul and to Timothy, that they were trusting in Jesus and had love for all of God's people. And so Paul recognizes then that this faith and this love, that it springs from the hope that is stored up in them, in heaven, uh, sorry, the hope that is stored up for them in heaven and about which they've already heard in the true message of the gospel. He sees this faith and this love that, that Epaphras is talking about It's an evidence of their new life in Christ, a life that has been held and kept secure for them in heaven where no thief can break in or no rust or mold can come and destroy. And it's this life in Christ that they had heard about in the gospel. It's not something more. It's not something extra. It's not something that only a few know, but it's the basics It's the result of the basics of what they'd already heard as Epaphras shared the good news of Jesus with them. See, Paul recognizes that this gospel, this basic good news of life in Christ, is bearing fruit and growing around the world and definitely in their lives specifically. And so he gives thanks. And as he does so, thanking God for for this, he points them to the reality that they are already living and experiencing the life that Christ offers to them. They don't need further knowledge or a special insight. They already have it because they have Jesus. Tim Keller says something like, the gospel, this good news of you know, life and salvation in Jesus, that the gospel is not the ABCs of the Christian faith, but it's the A to Z of it. In other words, that it's not just something elementary. It's not, you know... Um, preschool or, or kindergarten or, or prep, you know, that kind of stuff. It's not just entry-level stuff that we then move on from and, and kind of leave behind as we go to advanced stuff. But it's actually just central to the whole of the Christian life. We never graduate from the gospel because we never need to. And that's why we still sing these gospel-rich, gospel-centered songs and we sing them week after week because we never move on from them. And so Paul says to the Colossians, they have Christ and his gospel, and that's enough. And, and he knows that it's enough because it's evidenced by their changed lives that spring from their faith and love and hope. And so this prompts at least two questions for us. Even, you know, just in this short way into this letter. And the first is to ask, you know, are we looking to Jesus and something else? Are we looking at Jesus and something? Because even subtly, we can find ourselves on the hunt for, for further knowledge, for further experience, as if, as if that's the key, that, as if that's the secret that will advance our faith beyond where we've gone so far. It might be a, a camp or a conference. It might be a spiritual gift. It might be a way to you know, read and interpret the scriptures. It might be you know, a particular teacher or way of praying or whatever it might be. And all these things are fine and they're good, but if you have Jesus, then that's actually enough. We don't need to be on this hunt for something more. But maybe the problem is that in our, as we do search for something more, when we engage in that, 
Maybe the problem is that we haven't yet plumbed the depths of Christ himself. He's not something that we move on from or add to, but he's the whole A to Z of our lives and of our faith. Maybe there's more of Jesus that we need to know and experience. The second question, though, is probably a bit more tangible. And that's the question, what would people say of our lives? If Paul and Timothy heard about the Colossians' faith and love because Epaphras passes on what he has seen, what would be said of us? If someone went from us and visited friends in another country, another state or whatever, and they asked, what's going on in the church there? What would be the report that they would give? And ask that for us as individuals, but also for us as a church. Has our salvation and our new life in Christ changed us in visible ways that others would notice and would talk about? Because Paul says here that the gospel bears fruit, that there's, a, there's an outgrowth of, of what's happened internally in us. And so is it visible? What would people see? What would people say about us? Well, in view of, um, view of this, in view of what Paul has given thanks for, he then moves on to prayer for these Christians. He says, for this reason, given that we've heard about your faith and how it's growing within you, we've heard about your love for the people, for this reason, since the day we heard about you, we've not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. At the heart of Paul's prayer here it is the motivation and goal that the Colossian Christians would live a life worthy of the Lord and would please him in every way, which includes then bearing fruit and growing. In other words, he prays that, that what they're currently already experiencing would continue and that it would even increase. Again, it's this affirmation that the gospel that they've received and responded to is sufficient in and of itself without the need for anything extra, but but for it to continue doing its work. And we see that as we look at the prayer more, more closely. It starts with him asking God to fill them with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. Now, David talked last week about how to know and discern God's will And so Paul adds that to his prayer here. But I want you to notice that knowledge of God's will doesn't come through any special rite of initiation. It doesn't come through any secret insight that just a a select elite few have. But it comes by the work of the Spirit within us. In other words, any Christian can know and can follow God's will because all Christians have God's Spirit in us to lead us and to guide us. Further, Paul's point is not just that the Colossians might know something that other people don't. The prayer is to live out what they know. That's that's what wisdom is in a biblical understanding. It's the living out in practice of what is known of God's will. 
That's why the very next phrase is so that. He wants them to know God's will so that they can do it. They can live it out. And living it out results in living a life worthy of the Lord and pleasing him in every way. Now that's a, that's a big prayer when we stop and look at that, that phrase. It's all-encompassing. That there's no aspect of our life that is outside of its, of its coverage. We, we can be happy following God's will and pleasing him in, in most ways, in some ways, but Paul's prayer is for it to be in every way. That's what following Jesus entails, that, that our whole lives are submitted to him. And so Paul describes what such a life looks like in what follows. Firstly, he says that such a life is bearing fruit in every good work. God has prepared good works in advance for us to do. Jesus has called us to remain in him and to bear fruit, fruit that will last. Being a Christian isn't just about doing our own thing. It's not just for our, for our own sakes. It's not just that we've got ourselves our golden ticket to heaven. But it's about living under good God's rule in his kingdom now and working to advance his rule and his reign, be that in our own lives or in our church or in the world. But, but following Jesus and living as part of his kingdom under his rule results in fruit from our lives. It works itself outwards from this inner reality. Secondly, living a life worthy of the Lord involves growing in knowledge of God. And again, it's not a stagnant or passive thing, but this active pursuing of God and of knowing him more. Think about dating someone. Some of you already are. Some of you wish you were. Some of you, it's well in the past. But you see this person, perhaps across the room, and you are just captivated by them. And you think, I'd really like to get to know that person. And so you, you start to orchestrate things so that you're then where they are. You just wander over and casually start chatting to the group of people that they're, they're with. You ask their friends about them. You find out where they work and you just, oh, I just happened to drop in. I was just passing by, thought I'd pop in. You change where you sit in church so it becomes, oh, oh, look, we're sitting next to each other. Isn't that nice? You start sending funny memes to them and then serious texts and then you actually have real phone calls even. And then next thing you know, you're spending all your spare time together. And eventually, one of you asks the question, and now you're actually dating. So what then? Do you stop all that pursuit? Do you say, I have now reached the pinnacle of my relationship and of knowing you, and now I'm good with what I've got. I don't need to talk to you anymore. I don't need to know anything more about you. I don't need to pursue you anymore. Not at all. If you're dating this person, you, you continue the relationship. You, you seek to know them more and more. And I think I just found out something about Marin. And we've been together for 24 years and there was still something new that I just learned. I can't remember what it is now, but it was deeply impactful. But, but just learned something new about her the other day. And it's like continuing to learn and know this person. Well, Christ has given his life for yours. And in response, you have now given your life to him. 
And so living worthy of that is to constantly seek to keep on growing in your knowledge of God, what he's like, what he does, who he is, growing in your relationship with him, pursuing him, knowing him more and more. And the thing is, it's not about gaining some secret hidden knowledge that's set apart for a special elite class of Christians. God has given us all of himself. Just like with the ancient Israelites, as we've been considering in the morning, God has given them the whole of the promised land, but they need to progressively move further and further into that land to take possession of it. God has revealed himself to us. And so now it's our great joy and our great opportunity to grow in our knowledge of him, to know him more and more. So thirdly then, Paul says that that a worthy and pleasing life, it's bearing fruit, it's growing in its knowledge of God, and that thirdly, it's strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Now, this is perhaps one of the biggest lures for, the, for, these misguided Christian, uh, for these misguided teachers in the Colossian church. It's the signs and the wonders that, that seem to give credibility to a ministry. It's their presence that, that seems to be taken as, as a definitive evidence of God's working and blessing. And it's attractive. I mean, who doesn't want power to, to do the miraculous, to heal miracles, to have a personal word from the Lord or whatever it might be? But here's what I find profound. Have a look with me at the full sentence that Paul says here in verse 11. So his prayer is that they would be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. And that, that's where we normally stop. But look what goes on. So that you may have great endurance and patience. Paul prays divine strength for them, not to overcome illness, not to conquer spiritual territory, not to manifest the power of God in some obvious and spectacular way, but for them to be able to endure and be patient. It actually seems really anticlimactic. It just feels so ordinary. But it's in the ordinary that our lives are transformed. See, someone can be healed of cancer and still be a jerk. So is it any less miraculous, any less requiring of God's strength for God to change their character? Someone can speak in tongues but still battle an addiction. So is it any less miraculous? Is it any less requiring of God's strength to overcome that? Someone can cast out demons but still be stingy with their money. Is it any less miraculous? Is it any less requiring of God's strength to make them abound with generosity? There's not some additional secret for supernatural power. There's just... Jesus and his gospel that gives us the power to live a life worthy of him in all the ordinary and everyday aspects of what that looks like. Yes, there can be those supernatural, spectacular things, but we know, you know this. We need God's power to consistently and, and constantly live out his life within us in very ordinary ways to endure and to be patient to growing kindness and gentleness and self-control and all that stuff. And so then the last aspect 
of this worthy, pleasing to God life that Paul prays is that they would give joyful thanks to the Father. And the reason that we would do so is because he has made us who are unworthy, he's made us qualified to be part of his kingdom through what Jesus has done for us. This is the reason then why we do things like sharing communion regularly, why so many of the songs that we sing declare and work through the gospel message and what God has done for us. It's to remind ourselves of it constantly and to prompt our joy and our thankfulness to God. This is what Paul prays for the Colossians. It comes from the conviction that, that the gospel that they've heard and the gospel that they've responded to is enough because it's in Jesus that we have been rescued from the dominion of darkness and have been brought into the kingdom of the Son. And based on this conviction that, that if we've got Jesus, then, then that's enough for us. Based on this conviction, Paul then prays that their lives would be increasingly consistent with that reality. We'll see both of these themes again and again as we continue through this letter. But at this point, I don't think we could do more than what Paul has done here, and that's to, to pray. Let's pray that we wouldn't look beyond our Saviour, but that instead we would believe in his sufficiency and that uh, as a result of that trust in him, that we would live a life that is worthy of him. Let's pray uh, this for ourselves. God, as we come to pray, I'll just thank you now for this group that you've gathered here tonight. I thank you for their faith and their trust in you and for the way in which they exhibit love and care towards each other. I thank you that here and in other places, God, perhaps from family members, perhaps from a friend, wherever it might be, that they have heard this gospel, this good news of salvation, forgiveness of sins, life with you, uh, a new spiritual life alive uh, and, and walking with you, that here they've heard that message as the only message that is spoken here. We continue to proclaim our faith and our, and our trust in you and we just thank you, God, again for Jesus and what he has done for us. We thank you that it's in him alone that our, our life is found. And so, God, I would pray, I'd pray for each and every one of us that we would live a life worthy of this calling that we've received and that we would seek to please you in every way. God, I pray that we would be bearing fruit, that as a result of what you have done within us internally, God, that it just flows out and is evidenced in our lives in different ways as we as you transform us, as we serve others, as we do what you would have us to do. God, may we bear fruit. God, I pray too that we grow in our knowledge of you, that we wouldn't be content with, with what we already know of who you are, but that out of our, our love for you, out of our um, faith and trust in you, that, that we would just pursue to know you more and more, God, that we'd know who you are, that we'd know what you're like, that we know, would know better and deeper what you have done for us and just grow in our faith in you and our worship and adoration of you. I pray too, God, that 
we would know your mighty strength. Some of us, God, are in certain circumstances that, that really needs, gee, it would be so awesome if you just zapped it, God, and, and just changed things. And we do pray for that. You do work in such ways. And so we would ask for, for that. But we also just pray for your power in some of the ordinary stuff, God, that we'd be patient, that we'd endure, that we'd grow in kindness gentleness, self-control, that you'd change our character, our attitudes, our responses, so they're that much more in line with who you are and how you would have us to live. And lastly, God, I pray that we would live this worthy life by continually giving joyful thanks to you, that the wonder of what you have done in the gospel, the wonder of what you continue to do in our lives would just stir our hearts to thankfulness towards you, to joy in you. For you have rescued us from the dominion of darkness and you, you have brought us into the kingdom of your Son whom you love and in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So God, in Him we give you thanks. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.